0: Hi, welcome to the first video in the 5343 Filial and Family Play Therapy course for the University of Wyoming. This is your final semester in the graduate certificate and I am so honored and excited to be teaching it. This is your first lecture video, so I hope that you will be able to feel like you get to know me a little bit as we go through this process. And I think that my goal today is to kind of give you an overview of the syllabus just to fill you in on some things that I think are helpful. And then we have to jump right in. So we are going straight into some background on the filial process and, and the CPRT treatment manual that we'll be using. So. It's going to be a packed video and I'm excited to go on this journey with you. But before we begin that, I'd like to introduce myself a little bit and share with you a little bit about my background and how I came to teach this course. So I'm Dr. Brenna Hicks, I'm in Florida, and I have been a play therapist since 2006. I have a private practice here, it's called the Kid Counselor, and I actually completed a graduate certificate myself back at the University of South Florida a little more than a decade ago. So I have been through this process and I know what it means to learn play therapy in depth and in great detail and understand the implication and the impact that it has. It has literally transformed my career path and I'm so grateful that I was able to learn about play therapy all those years ago. So I'm excited to be on this with you. I am a part of the Association for Play Therapy and I received an award and Dr. Defoe contacted me as a result of seeing my name for the dissertation research that I did and the short version of that research is that I conducted CPRT in an online format and I had international participants and I was able to train them in the same way that I'm going to be helping you to train your participants this semester. So um, Dr. Defoe reached out and said, you have the experience of teaching online, you have the experience of doing CPRT and you've done an online version of CPRT. So he gave me the opportunity to be with you on this journey and I'm very excited for that. Uh, Let's get ahead, get going and get into the notes for today. Um, This is the only week where we are not following directly out of the manual. Much of this does in fact come out of the text, but we're actually going to be jumping into each training session next video. So this is just kind of a broad overview, a really bird's eye view of this process from the history, the origins all the way through the rationale and the goals and what your role is as the therapist conducting those groups and research what that shows there's there's a lot of complexity and a lot of background on this unfortunately many people many families in our country really are not even aware that this training exists yet there's so much history and there's so much empirical evidence and support for it so it's my hope that as we are able to talk about it more and conduct sessions more and make people more aware of it, that it really begins to disseminate more because right now I feel that a lot of us are trained in play therapy but don't necessarily have the platform to use it with parents. So I'm really excited about you all walking away from the end of this graduate certificate having a really good understanding of what filial therapy is and and how to use CPRT in a meaningful and effective way. So. What I'd like to start with is the history because I think it's always important to look at how something developed and what that process looked like from start to finish. So back even as early as 1900, the earliest recorded evidence of a play therapy based intervention was actually with Freud. And I know psychoanalysis and and play therapy seem to be very far apart, but Freud actually has the initial recorded session of conducting play-based interventions with a five-year-old boy and it was actually a fear of horses and he trained the father to use play to help this little boy overcome his fear of horses. So as early as 1900s, turn of the century, we have evidence of play being used as an effective treatment modality. Move to the middle of the century, around the late 1940s, Dorothy Baruch actually advocated home play sessions to enhance parent-child relationships if you spend any time looking at the history of filial therapy because play therapy is the basis for filial but filial is very specific because it's training parents so there's a little bit of a different spin with the filial therapy versus play so if you look at any history or any research based on the filial process historically you will see Dorothy Baruch's name mentioned because She actually kind of pioneered the idea of conducting play sessions in your home to strengthen that bond between parents and children. Then in the late 50s, Natalie Fuchs, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with her or how her name is synonymous with someone else who is extremely powerful in this field, but she is actually Carl Rogers' daughter and I happen to be a child-centered play therapist so Rogerian runs through my blood and so Carl Rogers actually helped her overcome her daughter's toilet training fears through play sessions and so as a child-centered play therapist and I obviously I understand there are a lot of different approaches to play therapy so you might have a very directive or you know, another hybrid of a play therapy approach and so not that one is different or better than the other, they just approach things in a different way. What's interesting to me is coming from a Rogerian background and a child-centered play therapy approach, the fact that Rogers was able to use the skills that he pioneered and, and really made so synonymous with the therapeutic relationship and tweaked it a little bit to use it with his granddaughter. I think that's a very special historical component here. So right around the same time, again late 50s, Moustakis came onto the scene and he actually was able to describe the play therapy home sessions between the parent and the child in a more concise fashion. So. As he came onto the scene he was able to articulate it better and make it a little bit more readily available and accessible to parents because Baruch kind of introduced it and then Moustakas took it to another level when he was able to kind of explain it in a more productive and effective way. What's interesting though is that up until the the 60s or so, none of these approaches and none of these pioneers who were kind of beginning the earliest historical evidence of this, they did not have supervision and support. So they were training parents, they were kind of introducing these concepts and these ideas, but there was really not any supervision or support that went along with it. And that's important to note because as we move forward, you'll see the transition to a very supervision and support based approach as we have now in CPRT. So moving into the 60s, right around the mid 60s, around 1964, Bernard Gurney and Louise Gurney, husband and wife team, they introduced a very specific argument base for filial therapy, meaning. Here are five arguments for why this is the most effective way for parents and children to strengthen their communication and their bond. So the first and probably most significant and I would argue most pervasively problematic view that still exists is that children's problems are due to the fault of the parent. And that is a running dialogue that when children have behavior struggles, emotional struggles, that well obviously the parent isn't doing a good job. What's interesting about these arguments that the Gurneys developed is that they believed that it was the parent's lack of knowledge and skill, not that they should be blamed for those issues. Big paradigm shift there and I think that that heavily influenced the outcome leading to CPRT. The second argument was that filial therapy helps parents relate more positively toward the child and it disrupts the cycle of misperceptions. Every family gets into cycles of misperceptions, meaning child misperceives parental discipline, child misperceives parental direction vice versa is true as well. Then parents misperceive the child's intention or the child's rationale or the child's needs. So all of these misperceptions really cloud the child-parent relationship. And so their argument was that filial therapy helps disrupt that cycle so that they can actually effectively communicate. Third, the precedent in Rogerian tradition, which I mentioned before, came out of Baruch and Moustakis, The precedent had already been set that Rogerian tradition of therapy was effective, but that it could also be transferred to the parents that they could educate along that same tradition. So if you think about three core components, I mean obviously I would hope that you have a pretty good understanding of Rogerian theory. you know, three core components are needed. Well, that can easily be conveyed to working with children as well. That's not exclusive to adults. So, that was another argument that was made. The fourth argument was that it eliminates parents' resistance. When you are helping and equipping and training a parent to use skills, meaning they're increasing their confidence, they're increasing their feeling of power and control, they're They have greater tools for their toolbox. I use that phrase all the time. I am giving you tools for your toolbox because when parents struggle is when they feel ill-equipped. So if you are equipping them with effective tools and skills and principles and things they can do that they know are empirically supported and they know work, They automatically do not resist the process because they understand that there is positive outcome right from the start. And then finally, the parent-child relationship is the most significant. And again, many other parent training models focus on correction of problematic behavior. So it's quick fix mentality, it's let's jump in and just solve the problem. Okay, your child's defiant, let's put something in a place to make them more compliant. Your child melts down emotionally, well let's figure out a solution for the emotional meltdowns. Unfortunately, that has again become an overarching view of helping parents deal with their children. This is a very, very contrasting view of of that approach because what they're saying is the parent-child relationship is the most significant. So if you increase that, all of the behavioral things and all of the negative things that are going on automatically reduce and are adjusted in an appropriate way. So. To kind of sum all of that up, the the really special thing that the gurneys provided to this historical context was filial therapy closed the gap between parents' need for help and a greater leverage of the professional's time. Because essentially what was happening is there's this great need for coaching and training and help with parenting and with kids. Limited mental health services meaning there weren't a lot of people that were equipped to address working with kids even still that's true I up until recently I was in a county of more than a million people and I was the only person that exclusively treated kids with play therapy So and I know in other states there is a greater concentration of play therapy So Florida's a little bit of a vacuum there and I know that but there is still a pervasive feeling that I'd rather work with kids, children are a whole different animal, I just don't get kids, I can't just sit and talk to kids, so limited mental health services available for parents struggling with children's behavior, especially at that time, I mean in the 60s I feel like it was probably even more of a struggle. Therefore, you really needed something that was effective and was time aware, time sensitive, you know you can't have a year long training of a parent and expect that to be immediately effective. But this program and training parents in that way was meaningful enough that it leveraged the professional's time because I only have a certain amount. I tell parents this all the time. I see your child for an hour a week. How many hours a week are you with your child? So yes, I can be helpful and I can, we can see positive outcomes and we can see positive change and growth and all of those things in that hour a week. That's why therapy works because you can come for an hour a week and it, it, it does show gain. However, if I can equip the parent to do the same things and become the therapeutic change agent in the child's life, they have so much more history, so much more emotional connection, so much more time in a given week with their children, the influence is so much greater. So it actually allowed professionals to have a greater leverage over their time because let me teach you so that you can do this on a more consistent and frequent basis. Alright, so moving into the 70s and 80s. So that was in the 60s, now we're moving into the 70s. What's interesting is at the early start of all of this And I actually just referenced it and realized I hadn't gone through that yet, so you probably were wondering why I mentioned a year. But historically, throughout this process, the training for parents was typically about a year long. And so if you can imagine, you know, if you're a mom or a dad struggling with behavior or struggling with compliance or discipline or whatever the situation may be, and you literally know that you're going to go through a year-long process to correct it, it seems so long and it seems so tedious. And so in the 70s and mid-80s, modifications began to reduce the length of time from a year or close to a year down to about five to six months, which at this point in our very immediate instant gratification type of world, you know, six months worth of parent training seems still excessive. But at the time in the 70s and 80s, that was actually a huge step in the right direction of reduction of time that parents would need to commit. So, interestingly, in 1983, the Handbook of Play Therapy was created and that kind of kept play therapy alive because what had actually been happening was a lot of other shorter modalities were overshadowing filial therapy. A lot of very shortened curriculum-based parent training around the 80s were coming into the mix and it was, you know two months, ten weeks, you know, very short concise blocks of time and that was basically overshadowing the filial therapy approach because it had historically just been a very long process. So the Handbook of Play Therapy came out in the 1980s, early 80s, 1983, and they were able to kind of revive the interest in play therapy and filial therapy because it really did make a difference in the parents' perspective on committing to such a long training. Then, 85 to present, the Association for Play Therapy was formed and working with families became a lot more prevalent. So family members recognized the potential and they saw the benefit in learning the skills themselves. And then around the mid-80s is when Gary Landreth developed the 10-week model that we use now and conducted extensive research on whether or not The efficacy was still there, even with a 10-week model. And what's interesting is, if you read the text and some of his background and, you know, you learn more about his career, he initially started using a 16-week model. His original reduction of time was to a 15 to 16-week model because that aligned with the academic schedule. And so he still had pretty high attrition rates. And obviously, if you work in a university setting, it would make sense that you would align a training with the length of a semester because you have students that are participating in the training and conducting groups, et cetera. So a 15 to 16 week model was actually what he initially started with and then realized he still had such high attrition rates that it wasn't where he needed it to be yet so he continued to play with reducing the amount of time until he learned that the 10-week model was the kind of magic length of time that parents could commit to it they could see it through really be heavily invested for those 10 weeks and he didn't lose the participants that he was when it was 15 or 16 weeks so What was interesting is because he was at the University of North Texas, he was able to take filial therapy students, train them, and then they were able to take leadership positions in conducting these CPRT training groups. All right, so I know that was a lot of history and background, but I think it's always important for us to look back and see how it emerged and how it changed over time so that we really have a good foundational awareness of the support for it because you know many people think play therapy and filial therapy is a very new thing and obviously we're seeing as early as nineteen hundred we saw evidence of the model and the approach so it's important to kind of look back to see where we've come from so let's kind of transition into the rationale for filial therapy because It really is a special approach that I feel that a lot of other theoretical backgrounds and models do not have. Because what it does is it affords us as clinicians and practitioners the ability to effectively help and assist more families and more individuals. You know I often will say to parents there's only so many hours in the day that I can work with your child. There's only so many time slots in my week that I can do play therapy with a child. But if I can conduct a group of six or eight parents at once, then they're able to go home and use the skills with their children. You can see how that just trickles in such a more meaningful and significant way than just me with that child for an hour a week. And what's been really amazing is the long-term treatment has been a huge rationale and motivator for this because if you think about it, We have, as a society, a very cyclical pattern of parenting, meaning we parent the way we were parented. Until we learn a different way, until we see the value in a different approach, we don't know what we don't know, right? So we don't know that there's another way. We don't know that there's a more effective way. We just do what we know because that's the way we were raised and or if we don't like the way we were raised we say I don't want to be that kind of parent I'm gonna be this kind of parent but it's still flying blindly you know you go into it and say well I think I'm gonna try to be the kind parent well kind parent is a valiant goal however it has to be balanced with some discipline and some structure as well so the really amazing thing about the filial therapy process is it's so long-term with intergenerational effects because if you think about it There may be three generations of parenting that was dysfunctional or angry or hurtful or aggressive or I mean you you fill in the blank, there's a lot of different parenting approaches that aren't necessarily healthy. So there may be several generations and a parent comes in and takes the CPRT training program and walks away fully equipped with a totally different healthy balanced mutually respectful approach to working with kids and then what happens they raise their kids in that way their kids raise their kids in that way it literally transforms families for generations and that is why i have been so fulfilled in doing this especially around the world i had someone in a Norwegian who happened to have been living in London at the time. I had two from South Africa. I had participants from all over the United States. And to know that the long-term impact is their children and their children's children will be raised in a more healthy way because of the material that these parents learned. That's so fulfilling and it's so rewarding and it's exciting because it's breaking dysfunctional cycles from generation to generation. So. Definitely a really significant rationale there. As specifically to the child, it's developmentally appropriate. There are lots of interventions and lots of parent training programs that focus on the cognitive side or the behavioral side or you know rational thinking and that's just not who kids are that's not how kids communicate so not only are there these other benefits but specific to the child its age appropriate and it's developmentally appropriate and parents are capable of learning the therapeutic skills which ties back to one of the arguments that was made from the gurneys was that if they learn the skills it's not lack of awareness anymore you know, a lot of times parents just don't know any better. So once you're made aware of these new opportunities, it really allows you to change and become a more effective parent. And this training provides structured weekly practice to ensure parent success. And all throughout your manual, all throughout your model, you will read again and again that Drs. Landreth and Bratton consistently reference this process where you get practice each week, you get feedback each week, you get supervision, you get support, you get peer encouragement. It really kind of brings the best of every other parent training model and lumps them all together so you get the best of everything because a lot of other training models have some of these components, but many of them are very education based, meaning here's the skill, go home and do it. Well, That's really challenging when you don't have the consistent support and feedback and monitoring and encouragement and all those things. So that this really is, because of the way it's structured, it is so effective in helping parents really integrate these skills into their lives. Parents are more significant to their children than therapists. And it utilizes the natural bond that already exists between the parent and child. That goes back to what I mentioned before you know, yes, I can see a child for an hour a week, but I have to work really hard to build that bond, build that rapport, build that trust, build that history, whereas the parents already have that. So you can utilize the existing bond and existing relationship that's already there in a really meaningful way through filial therapy. Anxieties learned from parents are unlearned in this training. And the misperceptions, like I mentioned, the misexpectations, they're corrected. And that's a very powerful dynamic shift in a family because, again, children absorb what parents do and say and think and act. So that is kind of breaking that cycle. And it intervenes in dysfunctional family dynamics, which I already mentioned before. All right, a couple more on the rationale. It empowers parents to help their children and reduces feelings of helplessness. My tagline or my mission statement as a therapist is to equip parents with the tools that they need to increase confidence in their parenting skills so that they can create the family life that they desire. Why? Because if you have confidence in your parenting skills you believe that you can handle anything that comes up with your kids. When you feel helpless as a parent there's literally no recourse to change that. You, you've you kind of almost waved the white flag and said I just don't know what to do anymore and that helplessness means that you don't feel that you can handle things and that's what totally changes with this training. You actually feel very equipped. Parents are able to believe in themselves, have confidence, and they know that they're not helpless. They, they have a whole arsenal of tools that they can use. And it makes parents an ally in the treatment rather than a rival. Interestingly There's a dynamic that takes place when the child aligns with the therapist and it almost becomes us against mom and dad or us against a sibling or us against whoever is creating the problem as far as the child perceives. And this actually allows the parent to be the ally because the parent is learning and using and implementing these skills. So it's not oh, I go and play with Miss Brenna each week and Miss Brenna is the one that's helping me do all of this. It's, wow, mom or dad or whomever's my caregiver is all of a sudden really acting differently and treating treating me differently and the entire dynamic in our family has changed and so they become an ally together and obviously that's what we want. We want parents and kids to have the best relationship. And finally, parents become the change agents, the therapeutic change agent, becomes the parent rather than the therapist. And all of that takes place in such a meaningful way because the child develops an internal locus of control, they have creativity, they have self-direction, they have self-responsibility, and the parent is the one that actually begins to bring that into the fold. Rather than the therapist coming in and fixing things There's a very different perception from everyone in the family when the parents become that change agent. So if you need to pause me and take a break, I completely understand. I know this is a lot. So if you need to kind of let your brain digest some of that, please feel free to pause and take a break. But we're going to move into the goals. Like I mentioned before, a lot of this is in your text, so I'm kind of summarizing the highlights of your readings, so you may see that a lot of this was covered in the text as well. So, this was broken down in the text for the goals, but specifically goals for the parent and goals for the child, because those are very different things in this process. So goals for the parent are to increase a sense of confidence. We already talked about that. Increase understanding of their child. And as you start to learn week one material, you'll learn about the Be With Attitudes and all of that. You really do see this incredible shift in parents when they learn that they have ways to understand their children that don't involve asking questions. So remember that, kind of put that on the back burner for a moment, but. When we start to talk about the be with attitudes and way that we can acknowledge the child's feelings, even when they don't have to say anything, it's so powerful. Increasing acceptance and appreciation of their child's uniqueness. A lot of times, one of the biggest struggles that parents have is comparing them to other kids that they feel are better behaved, smarter, more athletic, more compliant, more fill in the blank and each child is so special and unique, and the parent actually is able to increase their appreciation of those unique qualities specific to their child. They're able to increase respect of their child's feelings, so that's part A, but then the follow-up is part B, that the child also has the right to express them. And that's another, actually that's week one, so we're we're coming up on that really soon. Helping Helping the parent acknowledge the child's feeling and reflect that back to them. But that's so important because I think that, you know, I'm a parent and as an adult I think we get caught up in if it's a negative emotion, children should express it only in one way. And one of the big differences in this approach is every feeling is valid. Not every behavioral expression of that feeling is appropriate, but every feeling is valid. And so the parent learns, I can respect my child's feeling and their right to express them, both. An increase in recognition of the child's need for autonomy and independence. That's another huge layer here, because a lot of parents are slaves to their, their children because they don't give them the freedom and the independence and the autonomy to do things they're fully capable of doing on their own. There's actually, in your book, there's actually a dialogue between Dr. Landreth and one of his participants, and she was complaining about, you know, I have to feed him in the morning, and I have to get his clothes on, and I have to help him brush his teeth, and Dr. Landreth said, how old is he, knowing good and well how old the child was. She says, he's five, and he says, I don't remember you telling me that his arms were broken, and she says, they're not, and he said, are his legs broken she says no and he says is he in a full body cast and at this point the parent starts to understand where he's going with this he's fully capable of feeding himself he's fully capable of getting dressed and so that autonomy and that independence not only do children need that but it is also helpful for parents to acknowledge it as well and then finally sixth goal is to increase unconditional love of the child And unconditional love is when the child is angry, when the child is frustrated, when the child is happy, when the child is excited, when the child is in any state, you love the child no matter what, and that increases as well. So, six main goals for the parent. Now, eight goals for the child. A more positive self-concept. A belief in who they are how they define themselves, how they understand who they are, their self-concept grows in a positive direction. Greater self-worth. They know that they have contributions, they know that they are able to have a meaningful impact in the world. Increased self-direction. They will do things on their own. I can't tell you how many kids come into my playroom for the first time and they, without even trying, bring something to me and say, Miss Brenna, can you open this for me? And the play therapist, the, the mom and the adult in me wants to go, sure, and do it right away. But the play therapist in me says, oh, that's really hard to open. But I think that you can do it because through that process, they learn self-direction. I'm going to do this on my own because my self-concept is greater, my self-worth is greater, and now I know that I can rely on myself and I can direct myself to try things. Greater self-acceptance. That, actually I know a lot of adults that haven't achieved self-acceptance, but I think that's such a struggle for kids, is getting to the point where they can say, I accept who I am and it's okay. It's okay if I fail sometimes. It's okay if I lose control sometimes. It's okay if I am mean to my siblings or my parents sometimes. I can accept myself independent of my behavior. Self-acceptance is huge. I, I feel, not that this is necessarily validated in any study that I've read recently, but I feel that that is at the heart of almost all children's dysregulation is that they just don't accept themselves. And if you think about Rogerian model here, you know, ideal self versus actual self, when they get so far apart, there's really absolutely no self-acceptance whatsoever because who I want to be is so far away from who I am. So, that's for another lecture. But, okay, self-acceptance, definitely a big goal there. Greater confidence in abilities. I know what I'm capable of. I can try it. I know that I'll be able to figure it out. I, you know, I just genuinely get to a point where I believe in myself and and that's a big goal for kids as well. Greater self-control across the board. Emotional, behavioral, social, mental. I just have greater self-control. An internal source of evaluation. Another phrase for that in our field is internal locus of control or internal motivation. So I Evaluate what I think about something. I choose to do it because I want to instead of I'm seeking or I'm expecting or I'm needing something externally. So source of evaluation also a really big goal. And then greater self-regulation. So I just stay a little bit more even and calm and controlled no matter what comes. Because, you know, there's always going to be a mountain and a valley, either we're coming down from one, going up, there's always going to be the zigzag of life. But if I have greater self-regulation, none of those things bother me and affect me the way that they used to. Alright so, goals for parents, goals for kids. These are not necessarily things that you're going to communicate very purposefully to parents, but these are just things that I think are helpful for you to know kind of as a foundational cornerstone of why we do this. You know, these are the goals that parents will be working toward. These are the goals kids will be working toward, even if we're not explicitly stating them to to parents as they meet with us. Okay, so objectives of the play session. Five objectives that I've kind of thought through and think are important. To allow the child through play to communicate thoughts, needs, feelings, desires, wishes, any other thing that they may have that they want to communicate, but through play. Because we get trapped in the mentality that kids need to tell us things. How was your day? Why did you do that? What made you think it was okay to throw that across the room? you know, what would you guys do at school? We ask, 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 and parents are, parents are unaware of the impact that that has because kids are emotional beings, they're not cognitive beings. So they will tell you everything you need to know through an emotional medium like play. But if you say how was your day, you're gonna get good because they, they don't want to live in their heads and that's where questions put them. So, second objective, facilitating child's positive self-esteem and self-confidence. That again tied into all those goals as well. But through the parent's interaction with the child, the child begins to feel that sense of self-esteem and self-confidence. It helps the child develop self-regulation, which again was a goal. It helps child change the negative perceptions of the parent and or see the parent as an ally. Sometimes the, the child does not already have a negative perception of the parent. And obviously that's a great foundation going in. So if that's the case, if it's more of a proactivity on the parent's part, we have a great relationship, I just really want a better relationship. I just want to feel that I've really taken in all of the opportunities that I can to be a really healthy, happy parent. You know, then there's no negative perception to begin with, but sometimes there are. Sometimes the relationship is really damaged and really broken and really struggling. And if that's the case, it actually helps change that negative perception, but then the parent becomes the ally like I mentioned before, so that's where that's forged. And then the fifth objective is to reduce problem behavior. And I know I just went through this whole dialogue about how we don't focus on behavior and it's about the relationship, but the beauty of this approach is by default there is always a reduction in problematic behavior. The undesired behaviors are always reduced and desired behaviors are always increased, but it is a byproduct of the relationship change, not the goal and not the initial focus. I know that was a ton. I'm grateful that we made it. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting into the actual CPRT curriculum next week. So next week you can look forward to getting the training on actually conducting week one. So I will walk you through all of week one material and kind of fill you in on things that you might want to highlight and things that you might want to say and how you can implement stories and things like that. So we are ready to dive in. We're ready to move right into preparing to start doing this with your parents and in your groups. I'm really looking forward to this semester and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Bye.